0: Good morning. Hello, everyone. Hi. All right, if you're new, you're like, who's this fella? My name's Obed, and I'm one of the leaders here, along with Dan and Jeremy um, and so many other awesome leaders. We have the privilege of serving um, under our chief shepherd, Jesus Christ, Um, as under-shepherds of this church. And so welcome. Um, As a church, we've been going through the book of Galatians, and this week we are going to be um, looking at the works of the flesh. And so if you have your Bibles, um, grab them and turn to Galatians chapter 5, Galatians chapter 5, and this week, we're going to be looking at three verses, verses 19, 20. We aim to honor God's word. And one of the ways we do this um, is to stand for the reading of it. And so if you could do that, that would be great. Galatians chapter 5, verses 19, 20, and 21 reads, Now the works of the flesh are evident, God. This is the word of the living God. All right, let's pray. And so, God, this morning we are going to be exploring um, a part of your word that comes with so many challenges and creates so much confusion and complexity. And so, God, um, I'm especially this morning thankful for your Holy Spirit. Um, thank you that your Spirit is at work in making us, helping us understand what your Bible says and apply it to our lives. And so this morning, may your Spirit do just that. And may we be encouraged and strengthened and reminded of your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have a seat. And so last week, we looked at um, the Holy Spirit, also known as the Holy Ghost or God's Spirit, etc. We found out that although the Holy Spirit is described as wind and breath, he's not a force or an energy, but he's a divine person. This means that the Holy Spirit is as much God as God the Father and God the Son, Jesus Christ, but the only thing that makes him different is that he has his own unique role in the lives of every believer. The Holy Spirit is one of God's most precious gifts in church. He takes up residence within the believer at the moment of salvation. And because the Spirit lives in us, works through us, He awakens our awareness of sin and the need for repentance. The Holy Spirit also is the one working in us to become more and more like Jesus Christ. He helps us understand what we read in the Bible and how it applies to our lives. And the Holy Spirit equips us with spiritual gifts that we can use to serve His church and glorify God. But the Holy Spirit doesn't just exist for these things. He provides more for the Christian. And so from Galatians chapter 5, verse 16 to 18, which we covered last week, We came to understand the need for Christians to walk by the Spirit. We came to realize that to walk by the Spirit is not just about feelings. To walk by the Spirit is not just about miraculous signs. It's not an excuse for odd behavior. It doesn't mean we ignore community and accountability. To walk by the Spirit It's not only for advanced Christians. And lastly, we found out that to walk by the Spirit is not passivity and lack of effort, but to walk by the Spirit means to intentionally live each day under the influence and guidance of the Holy Spirit. John Piper, who's a well-known Christian author and pastor, wrote this, walking by the Spirit It's not a mystical experience. It's a deliberate, moment-by-moment choice to follow the Spirit's leading. And so walking by the Spirit is beneficial in so many ways for the Christian, but one of the benefits um, of um, the Holy Spirit, walking by the Spirit, is found in verse 16 of chapter 5. Let's read that together. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. What is this saying? It's saying that if we walk by the Spirit, what's going to happen is that as Christians, we will not gratify the desires of the flesh. In the Bible, the word flesh doesn't always refer to the skin or surface of the human body. In fact, the word flesh in the Bible often refers to the sinful nature of human beings. Flesh is often a metaphor for our inclination towards selfishness, immorality, and other behaviors that go against God's will. In other words, you know you are under the influence of the flesh when what you want for yourself is in conflict with what God wants for you. Look at Galatians chapter 5, verse 17. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. This verse talks about this tug of war that is happening within every follower of Jesus. On one side is the Spirit pulling us towards God's will. On the other side is the desires of the flesh that try to lead Christians away from God's will. Because of this, choosing to walk by the Spirit doesn't mean all our sinful tendencies instantly disappear. And it's important to know this so we don't set unrealistic expectations for ourselves. Joe Rigney says this, In this life, the desires may still rise up, but according to Paul, they don't have to master us. They don't have to rule us, We don't have to gratify or indulge them. We can be free, but only if we walk by the Spirit. Rodent problems can get out of control fast. You didn't see that one coming, did you? Rodent problems can get out of control fast. One of the reasons... Why the infestations grow so quickly is that mice and rats are very good at staying hidden. Rats are very good at staying hidden, but they're not good at hiding their presence. Why? Because they end up leaving traces of poop that expose their presence. I experienced this firsthand last year in October, my family and I, we went to Arizona to do a wedding there, incredible wedding, Um, did I say Arizona or Sedona? Arizona, yes, and we did visit Sedona, which is an awesome place, if you haven't been, please go, And when we got back, no, when we were leaving, um, I I took my car to the mechanics. It was a Honda Civic um, 2003. Loved the car, but it was having some problems. So I took it to the mechanics and I was gone for a week. I came back, picked up my car, took it to my home, parked it in my parking space. The next day I woke up and I looked in my car and it looked messy. And I said to myself, I'm not a messy person, but it may have been my kids. But this kind of mess wasn't normal. It was out of control. I looked closely and I saw rat poop everywhere. I didn't see the rat, but I saw rat poop everywhere. I was not going to get in that car ever again. (laughs) It was awful. And so I set traps with peanut butter and all of that. Next day I came. Guess what? The rat ate the peanut butter and escaped being squashed. Crazy. I knew there was a rat in my car. Not because I saw the rat, but because of the poop that was everywhere in my, in my car. The rat poop was the evidence that there was a rat living in my car. And so, after reminding us of the ongoing conflict between God's Spirit and our sinful nature, the Apostle Paul, who is the author of this letter he wrote to a church in Galatia, what he decides to do is to describe what it's like to be under the influence of the flesh. Just as rat poop is evidence that there is a rat, these behaviors and attitudes Are evidence of the flesh that's why he says at the beginning of verse 19 that the works of the flesh are what evident in other words when you see these attitudes or behaviors you know where they're coming from they are coming from our flesh The part of us that wants to always go against what God wants for us. And so this morning, we are going to look at the works of the flesh. And just to warn you, it's going to be a challenging morning. Before we look at the list it's important to also realize that the list is context-specific in Galatians, and the context to interpret this list in is a church context. In other words, these are the sins or vices that are widespread, not just in our society, but also in the church, in the hearts of every believer. And so, my brothers and sisters in Christ, as we go through this list of works of the flesh, this is what I want us to do. I want us to resist the temptation to think that it applies to those outside the church or those you may view as lesser Christians. I urge you to step into a space of humility and introspection And let's remember that even in our walk with Christ, we are still prone to the influences of our human nature. Let's also remember that salvation doesn't make us perfect. It sets us on a journey of being transformed into the likeness of Christ. And so Paul provides a list of 15 15 behaviors and attitudes that stem from the flesh. And he divides them, and we can divide them into four categories. Okay, four categories. And the first category um, of works of the flesh is sexual sins. Sexual sins. Look at verse 19 of chapter um, 5 again of Galatians. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. he starts to list them. Here's the three sexual sins. Sexual immorality, impurity, and sensuality. This category includes behaviors directly related to moral and ethical failures in sexual conduct. The first is sexual immorality. The original Greek word used here for sexual immorality is pornea. This is where the word pornography comes from. Pornia is a Greek term that has two basic meanings. Sex with a prostitute is prostitution, or sexual immorality in general. In other words, the concept of pornia, sexual immorality in the Bible, is broad. It basically includes any form of sexual activity outside the lifelong covenant of marriage between one man and one woman. Therefore, sexual immorality, pornea, Includes, but is not limited to, first premarital sex, which is engaging in sexual relations before marriage. Pornia also includes adultery, homosexuality, sexual relations between individuals of the same sex, prostitution, pornography. Bestiality, pedophilia, and so forth. Any other forms of sexual activity outside of the lifelong covenant of marriage is defined by the Bible as sexual immorality, which is works of the flesh. The next sexual sin on the list of works of the flesh is impurity. The Greek word translated as impurity is akathasia. It literally means uncleanness, but not just in the physical sense. In relation to sexual sins, impurity is an even broader term than pornea. While pornea includes actions like adultery, fornication, and other forms of sexual activity outside the marriage covenant between one man and one woman, acathesia impurity is about the thoughts, intentions. And fantasies that lead us away from purity of heart and mind. Therefore, we could say the term impurity covers any sexual activity outside of marriage that does not involve actual intercourse. This then includes, but not limited to, sexual acts like pornography, sexually vulgar or suggested language, sexual foreplay, masturbation, oral sex. Any sexual activity outside of marriage between one man and one woman that does not involve actual intercourse is here defined as impurity, a behavior that is outside of God's will. When Paul talks about sensuality, he's using the Greek word aselgia. This term is rich in meaning and refers to a lack of self-control that leads to reckless, indulgent, and often inappropriate behaviors. Sensuality plays out as an abandonment of God's design for sexuality. Instead of expressing love and commitment within the boundaries of marriage between a man and a woman, sensuality seeks Pleasure without regard to these sacred boundaries. It's the act of putting one's desires above all else, even at the expense of one's spiritual health and the well being of others. Last week, a song called Yes and by an artist named Ariana Grande. (laughs) Who is she? (laughs) This song was the number one song on the Billboard's Top 100. The interesting thing about this song is that it's all about how Ariana Grande She left her husband for another married man. She wrote this song to justify her actions. The meaning of this song serves as an example of sensuality. Like Ariana Grande, anyone in this category, anyone um, expressing sensuality flaunts their immorality or impure behavior almost as, as if they are proud of it. So Ariana Grande has basically said, look, I left my husband for another married man. Yes, and... Sensuality here denotes being so consumed by the pursuit of sexual pleasure, that public opinion no longer matters. As a church, we are committed to a biblical Christian sexual ethic. As a result... We affirm that marriage is to be between one man and one woman. We affirm that sexual intimacy is a gift from God to be cherished and is reserved for the marriage relationship between one man and one woman. And we affirm that all other forms of sexual intimacy, including all forms of lust and same-sex sexual activity of any kind, are sinful and the works of the flesh. In a nutshell, we agree with the following statement. Sex is a is so powerful that the only container strong enough to hold its raw nuclear force is marriage as defined by Jesus and the Scriptures. Any sexual activity outside of this covenant of marriage, adultery, premarital sex, cohabitation, same-sex sexual sexual activity, pornography, etc., violates Jesus' call upon those of us who follow him. This year, we plan to unpack and explore um, the Christian sex ethic a bit more. We really need to. But for now, we've briefly addressed sexual sin, which I know is a topic that touches each of us in very personal ways. Sexual sin is a subject that brings with it this heavy, heavy, Weight that is often um, carried in silence. And so I want to take a moment now to speak directly to this. First, if you're here and you're carrying the weight of past involvement in sexual sins, I want to offer you hope. You might be sitting there replaying those moments, thinking to yourself, my actions have scarred me, and can I ever, ever move beyond my past? If you're feeling trapped in shame because of past sexual missteps, I want to remind you of the gospel and what it truly means for you. The gospel tells us about God's amazing love Mercy and grace, the gospel doesn't shy away from our messiest paths. It exposes them for what they are, but then reminds us that there's nothing too big or too messy that God's grace cannot cover. If you're here and you've messed up big time in the area of your sexuality, I want to remind you that in Christ Christ, your past doesn't define you. God's love demonstrated in Christ does. And in God's eyes, you are cherished, forgiven, and all you will know from now on and all you experience is God's amazing grace. Others of you are currently Entangled in some sort of sexual sin. Their statistics are crazy. When we talk about those who are entangled in sexual sin, men and women who are within the church are struggling so if you're here and you're feeling powerless to break free, some of you might be thinking, I- 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 I'm-, I'm too far gone. Nobody understands or can relate to the complexity and extent of my struggles. And so if you're here and this is you, I want to remind you that you're not alone in this battle and that freedom is possible. I also want to remind you that the courage to acknowledge this struggle is the first step toward healing. Confession, repentance, and seeking help, they're not signs of weakness. They are means of grace toward being finally free. We're your church family. We really are. And we are here to support you, to walk with you without judgment, and to come alongside you so that you can begin to find your worth and joy in Christ alone. And so if this is you and you are currently entangled and losing the battle against sexual sin, let me encourage you to just make it known. This is an important first step in seeking healing and deliverance. For some of you, this conversation might seem irrelevant or over the top. You might wonder, why does what feels natural or harmless, why is it wrong? God gave me these desires, didn't he? Why do I have to keep them within these boundaries of marriage? Why can't I just flaunt and express myself? If this is you, if you have been justifying sexual sin, I challenge you to seriously consider not just the immediate pleasure or convenience of sexual sin, but the broader impact it makes on your life and impact it makes on others. Sexual sin isn't just about personal choices, it's about how those choices align with living a life that honors God and respects the people around us. And so, if this is you, I invite you to see the truth beyond your immediate desires. I plead with you to repent, to turn from these attitudes and behaviors and turn towards a life of purity that will truly fulfill and satisfies you. As we've briefly looked at sexual sin, it's also crucial that we recognize that there are others here this morning who bear deep wounds, not from their own actions, but from being victims of sexual sin. If this is part of your story, I want to offer you hope and encouragement. The gospel of Jesus Christ speaks into every area of our pain and brokenness, and it offers comfort, restoration, and hope. The scriptures affirm that you are deeply loved, valued, and seen by God. For example, in Psalm 34, verse 18, we're reminded that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Your pain does not go unnoticed by God. He is close to you in your suffering. In the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we see God entering into human suffering to bring about redemption and restoration. Jesus, who himself experienced betrayal and pain, is intimately familiar with your sorrows. He offers you his presence his comfort and his healing. And so I want to assure you, your worth and identity are not defined by, by what has been done to you. In Christ, you are a new creation full of worth and dignity. The wrongs committed against you are not overlooked by God. He is a God of justice and healing, and he promises one day to right every wrong and wipe away every tear from your eyes. And so for those carrying the weight of these experiences, I encourage you to reach out for support. You're not meant to walk this devastating journey alone. Our church is here to offer love, support, and guidance to help you find, whether it's professional care, if needed, and to just walk alongside you as a brother or sister in Christ. Last but not least, as we talk about Sexual sin. um, I, I think it's right and appropriate that we speak directly and sincerely to those among us who live with same sex attraction. As a church, we acknowledge with deep regret that the church as a whole has. Fallen short in demonstrating the needed love and care that each of you deserves. The church has done a poor job in loving and caring for those who live with same-sex attraction. For this, we are profoundly sorry. Please hear this today. We do not view same-sex attraction as the gravest of sins, nor do we wish to single it out as such. Every one of us faces different challenges and temptations, and it is not our place to rank them. What is most important is for us to respond to each other's struggles with compassion, understanding and a willingness to support one another. And so if you are here and you profess faith in Jesus Christ by experience, by experience same-sex attraction, I want you to know that we are committed to being a community where you can feel safe and valued. We want you to know that our desire is to be a church family where you can share your experiences and struggles without fear of judgment or exclusion. We want to walk alongside you as you pursue a life that honors God, we are here to listen, we are here to do our best to offer support and to help you navigate the complexities of trying to live for Jesus, um, of trying to live for Jesus, but still wrestling with your identity and um, your sexuality and all of these things. Our commitment as a church, is to help every member of our community, and this includes you, to walk by the Spirit so you don't gratify the desires of the flesh. In other words, we desire to be your church family that helps you live out the calling God has placed on your life and fully participate in the life of the local church. We are incredibly thankful for Jesus followers like you, who, though you continue to struggle with same-sex attraction, we're so grateful for you because you're living a life of chastity and obedience, and you serve us as a courageous example of faith and faithfulness as you pursue Christ with a long obedience in gospel dependence. King's Cross Church. Let's be a church that is committed to ministering to sexual strugglers of all kinds with biblical truth and grace. But most importantly, let's give thanks for the gospel. The gospel that can save and transform the worst of sinners and let's rejoice in our Lord Jesus Christ whose heart and desire is for sinners and sufferers to become more and more like him and so the works of the flesh includes sexual sin Next, the works of the flesh includes religious sins. Um, Look at verse 20 of chapter 5. List them, idolatry and sorcery. Um, Idolatry, as you know, is not just um, limited to material objects of wood or stone. Idolatry can take non-material forms. Money, possessions, career, reputation, and ambitions of various sorts can all be forms of idolatry. John Calvin said this, the human heart is an idol factory. Sorcery is also considered a sin in the religious category. Sorcery is the English translation of the Greek word pharmaka, from which we get the words pharmacy and pharmaceutical. It means using drugs. In Paul's day, it was applied to drugs used in witchcraft and used for poisoning people. Today, sorcery would include astrology or fortune-telling or other occult practices. It would also include using drugs, legal or illegal, not for medical purposes, but for their mind-altering effects. Idolatry and sorcery are considered religious sins that stem from the flesh. So the works of the flesh include sexual sins, religious sins, and relational sins. Look at verse 20 again through to the first part of 21. Um, Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. These attitudes and behaviors stem from the flesh, and they're known as relational sins. This large category um, encompasses sins that directly harm relationships between individuals through conflict, manipulation, or hostility. We've got enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. They're all self-explanatory. And the interesting thing about these relational sins is that they are sins we tend to tolerate. What I mean by that is as a church and as Christians, we're often um, very quick to be like, man, there are bad, big sins out there. But when it comes to some of these sins like jealousy and envy and all of those things, we tend to tolerate them. Jerry Bridges wrote a book called Respectable Sins. And he said, these are some of the sins we respect or accept as Christians. He says, it is easy for us to fill our lives with what we might consider acceptable sins, overlooking them as mere character flaws or areas of weakness. And so we are appalled, and rightly so, by the blatant sins of society. But the question is, why do we not also mourn mourn over our respectable sins of selfishness, envy, enmity, strife, frustration, discontentment, pride, and anger? And so the reminder here is that sin is sin, and whether your sin is blatant or subtle, um, it's sin according to God's word. And so... We've seen that the works of the flesh include sexual sins, religious sins, relational sins. Lastly, they are also excessive behavior sins. Excessive behavior sins. Look at verse 21. Drunkenness and orgies are listed as these. All right? Drunkenness speaks of revelry where alcohol impairs moral judgment and in. And inhibits and possibly leads to immoral actions. Orgies are closely connected with drunkenness and denote wild partying behavior. The list of works of the flesh ends with these words. Look at verse 21 envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. This phrase indicates that the list is not exhaustive. And things like these is a way of saying that any actions driven by selfish desires that harm others or go against God's will fall into the category of works of the flesh. Paul then concludes the section on works of the flesh with these words, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit The kingdom of God. The first thing to note in this verse is that Paul has given this warning before. If you notice, he says, I warn you as I warned you before. This means this is not the first time he's saying this. The second thing I want to highlight about this verse is the Greek tense Listen to this. This is important, everyone. Stay with me. The Greek tense Paul uses for those who do such things. This tense implies a pattern or habit of behavior rather than a one time occurrence. Paul's message here isn't about condemning us for a single failure or lapse. The heart of his warning lies in the ongoing deliberate choice to engage in sinful behaviors, especially when you know that they are wrong. It's the difference between struggling against sin or intentionally deciding to persist in it despite knowing that it's clearly against what God wants for you. And so I wonder where you are at in all of this. Where do you see yourself in the struggle against the works of the flesh? Are you fighting and doing all you can to resist and trying to walk by the Spirit, or are you very much like, do you know what? I can do what I want and live how I want How you answer this question will determine whether you're part of God's kingdom or not. In Luke chapter 18, verse 9 to 14, Jesus shares the following parable. It reads, he, Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Here's the story. Here's the parable. He says, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you. That may have been his voice. God, I thank you I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give thighs of all that I get. That's what he says. But 13 tells us what the tax collector was saying. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then Jesus concludes with these words. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This morning... I know what we've covered has been challenging. And I know we've touched on some deep and painful and hurtful and complex topics. And we've touched on it quickly, and I wish we had time. And like I said, we put in plans to really spend time looking at Christian sexual ethics. But it's been challenging, looking at the works of the flesh. And so this story, listen to me here, told by Jesus about a Pharisee and tax collector offers us something. It offers us two responses to the reality of the works of the flesh in all of our lives. Because let me remind you, that in all of our hearts, whether you are, uh, you've been a Christian for like two minutes or 20 years in all of our hearts, lurks the 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 works of the flesh our natural desire and inclination is to is towards these things is towards sexual immorality and towards strife and anger and all of these things we are definitely and humans that are bent on all of those things and so as we've explored all of this this story offers us two responses We can respond like number one, the Pharisee, who believed he was justified by his deeds. He sees himself through a lens of self righteousness. He compares himself to others to elevate his own status, yet his heart is far from the humility God desires. Or you can respond like the tax collector who is aware of his sins and shortcomings, who is not attempting to justify himself by good deeds. He knows he's in need of mercy, and it is this humble acknowledgement that justifies him before God. And so, as we reflect on the works of the flesh and how they can manifest in our lives, my encouragement not as the Pharisee did, but as the tax collector. Let us recognize always that we are sinners. We we have shortcomings and our need for God's grace, and we have a need for Jesus Christ. And in Christ, we find forgiveness, love, and the promise of victory and transformation through the Holy Spirit. And so this morning, I invite you to acknowledge, be honest about the presence of sin in your life, not with a spirit of condemnation, but with the humility of the tax collector. This morning, I want to encourage you to turn to God in repentance Turn to God in repentance and trust in his mercy and grace to forgive and to renew you. This morning, I want to exhort you to embrace the love that comes through the forgiveness of sins and embrace the love that allows you to be transformed into the likeness of Christ. And as we do this, church family... Let's never forget that it's not our righteousness, but Christ's sacrifice that makes us right with God. And in understanding that we are justified means that we are free to obey God and live for Him with all of our mind, with all of our hearts, with all of our souls. And in realizing that we are justified, it's a call for us, it's a call for us to love and serve others who are struggling with any of these sins. And so, King's Cross Church, let this be our prayer today. God, be merciful to me, a sinner, and let us rest No matter where you are, no matter what you're going through, no matter what you're struggling with, may you rest in the assurance that through Christ, mercy, forgiveness, and love is yours from now on throughout eternity. Let's pray. God, be merciful to us. God, you have demonstrated your amazing, unconditional love for us. that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so as we have been rooted in the gospel, In this truth of justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, God, we've also been reminded of the sin that lurks in all of our hearts. And so, God, as we seek to overcome, may we walk by the Spirit. May you help us walk by the Spirit so we don't gratify these desires. And above all, as we walk by the Spirit, we'll be reminded over and over again of Christ, his sacrifice, and his love and commitment and faithfulness to us. In his name we pray. Amen. This Sunday, we've reflected on the works of the flesh and... I know this week I will encourage you to make sure you attend a community group. Um, we have groups that meet all over the city. Make sure you attend a group so that you can process some of these things with um, your brothers and sisters in Christ. As we've reflected on the works of the flesh We're reminded of the stark contrast between a life led by the flesh and one that is led by the Spirit. These works, sexual immorality, enmity, strife, jealousy, and the like are not just ancient words. They're not. They are real struggles that each of us faces each and every day. Beautiful truth of the gospel While we were still entangled in these very works of the flesh, Christ died for us. Christ died for us. This is the heart of the gospel we remember as we come to the table for communion. Communion, or the Lord's Supper, was instituted by Jesus himself on the night he was betrayed. It is a time for us, the body of Christ, to remember and proclaim his death until he comes again. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23 to 25, the Apostle Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So the Lord's Supper, the communion table, is not about us It's not about our righteousness. It's about Jesus and it's about his body broken for our sins and his blood shed for our redemption. It's a declaration that we are no longer defined by the works of the flesh because of the work of Christ on the cross. And so if we profess faith in Jesus if you cling to him as the source of your salvation and the forgiver of your sins, this morning you are invited to partake in communion. you're going to do is when you are ready, you're going to come up and you're going to grab a cracker and you're going to dip it into the juice. And what I want you to do is go back to your seat. And just before you partake in communion, I want you to reflect again on what it means. And then you can celebrate communion. If you are here and you are still exploring Christianity and you haven't yet surrendered your life to Jesus, first of all, we are glad you are here And so during this time of communion, we invite you not to partake in communion, but to simply observe, to reflect on what you've heard and consider the invitation that Jesus extends to all of us, an invitation to a life transformed by his grace and his spirit. And so as we partake in communion, let's meditate on the incredible sacrifice of our Lord, Let's examine our hearts and let's celebrate the grace that frees us from the bondage of the flesh and invites us into a life of freedom and joy in the Spirit. So we're going to extend this time, participate in communion, but also you can stand and sing some of these songs. You can sit and sing. But also you can really, I mean, if you need, we have men and women, um, Bronte and Alec, who are on my right and my left, and they are ready to pray for you. We've covered some really tough topics this morning. And so if you need prayer for anything, go to them. If you came, I'm always encouraging this, but couples, make this a priority every Sunday to pray with each other. Pray that you would both remain faithful to the marriage covenant God has called you to. If you came as a group of friends, gather together, pray with each other. This is a moment for us to engage with God To be reminded of His amazing grace despite our sinful nature.